fire this up. We are continuing. This is uh, part two. This is part two of our um, uh, study here on uh, how to read your Bible. And really, when we're talking about how to read your Bible, what's another word we could substitute for the word read in this study? Okay, study. There's another word I'm also thinking of. I'm just curious. Interpret. Really, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about rules of interpretation. Because when you read something, you're interpreting it. When you are reading something, whether you think it or not, as your mind is looking at those things and taking it in, you're making interpretation on the stuff that you're talking about. So when you see the word God in your Bible, especially if your Bible writes it with a capital G, most of the time you're going, oh, we're talking about the God. Occasionally you're going to come across some places in the Bible where you might have a G with a God with a small g because the translators have said, well, it's not talking about God, it's talking about a, a false God or something. And you read that, read it that way. It's an interpretation thing that you pick up on. So really what we're doing is we're talking about rules of interpretation. But rather than using that big fancy word, we're simply saying how to read your Bible. Because that's what it comes down to. How do you read it? When you are reading it, when you are reading it, how do you understand these things? How do you take this in? And last week in part one, we were talking about the, well, what we're talking about in this section is that we should read it in an historical, grammatical manner. In fact, one of the things you learn, uh, and I would say in most Protestant seminaries today, they would say that we interpret the Bible in an historical, grammatical fashion. Whether they're consistent in practicing that or not, it's another matter. But that's what we're doing. So last week we talked a little bit about history, talked about some context and how we looked at some examples where the, we allowed the, the Bible to provide us a context for interpreting some passages of Scripture. And uh, we ended last week, I believe, by talking about, we did get through children last week. That's the whole thing is I didn't mark my outline. So I think we actually hit. Thank you. Thank you. We did get there. Okay, that's kind of what we thought I did. It's, you know, sometimes you, sometimes I write dates on so I can keep track of where I was. But I was pretty sure that we went through an example of the word uh, sun last week. So we saw that in a sun, sun has a variety of usages. And But this is one of those places where you need to educate yourself when you read your Bible. Because we have take, uh, we take or understand the word sun in modern English in a different way than the Greeks and the Romans and the Hebrews used the term sun. They had, a, they had a variety of meanings. We looked at that last week. But among those variety of meanings, there was that special usage that I think is important to understand where we're talking about sun as an adult of privilege in the family, um, a person that actually can function as an equal. Now we come to another word in here, which this may be interesting, but it's the word diacrino. And you guys don't know what diacrino means because we don't, because you, if you, unless you're reading Greek, you don't know what it is. But diacrino is our word that is translated doubt, but it's not always doubt. And so I want to look at an example where it is not doubt and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because the word literally is made up of two words in Greek, it's made up of the word crino to judge. And dia, through or between. So you're judging between things. you got two things and you're making a judgment, a discernment between those two things. So 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
look with me at verse 5. He's talking about the issue of lawsuits. And he's wanting to know, don't you have somebody in the church that could step up? Uh, I think uh, one, uh, some, one friend at one time said, don't, can't, can't you even get the church janitor? They were kind of being facetious and saying this. Can't you even pull the church janitor if you had one and let him judge this matter? That would be better than going to a court and settling this matter. And so in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 5, I say this to your shame, that there is not among you one wise man who is able to decide or discern between his brothers. So you got two brothers that are a problem. And the word that we're looking at here that's translated diacrino in this verse, at the end, um, um, Yes, there it is. It's the word that's translated decide in, in uh, the New American Standard. Able to decide between his brothers. So he's able to judge between. I was pretty sure that's what it was, but I just had to go back and check to make sure I had the right one. So that's one meaning of this word. But we're going to look and we're going to see that, and that's only in the active voice. Now, you go, what does that mean? Well, a Greek verb has a voice. It tells you the relationship of the person that's the subject to the action. So actively, you have somebody, in this case, you have somebody in the church actively judging between two brothers that have an issue. So that's an active voice. We also have a middle voice where you are judging for the benefit, would be the judging for the benefit of yourself, something along that line. Or you have a personal interest in somehow or another in what you're doing. But there's also the passive. That would be, you are being judged. And that's what happens when we have the word doubt. And I want you to turn uh, in your Bibles here uh, to the book of Romans in chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. And you ought to matter before you. This is so what's happening. So over there we had two brothers, and they've got an issue between them, and you have somebody that's judging between those two guys on their behalf. But when we have a doubt... You have a matter before you as an individual, and you are being judged between those two things. Should I do this or should I do this? I don't know which one should I do. And that's where doubt comes in. And so they, the Greeks use this word diacrino, where it's not that you are judging between two things. It's where you are being judged, where those two things are actually pulling on you. And so in Romans chapter 4 and verse 20, Let's go back up to verse 19. And without becoming weak in faith, that's a good kind of precursor to the idea of doubt, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in uh, unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And that word um, in verse 20, uh, where it says, but with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief. Literally, he did not doubt in unbelief. He was not pulled in two different directions. He was not being judged by two things. And that's the idea of the word doubt. You are being judged between two things. You are deciding. And so he's not... Abraham's not looking at this and going, well, I know God said this promise, but look at Sarah and I. We don't have, we don't have a shot at this. It just ain't going to happen. But God said it. But how is it ever going to happen? 
But God said, you see what, see where I think all of us could relate to what he's kind of saying here that you'd be wondering how this is going to happen. But he said he didn't do that. When God made that promise, it, he said he didn't even look, he, he knew he wasn't capable. He knew Sarah wasn't capable, but he knew God's promise was good. And so he didn't doubt. He wasn't divided in this matter. And so this is where we have to learn some different things about these words. This is one of the reasons why when you are studying the Bible, and you guys have it so easy. <laughs> you go back even 30 years ago when I, was in, when I had been in seminary in there, you had to acquire all these paper tools, and then you had to learn how to get around in those paper tools. So like Josh has showed you a couple of times, you can go out, you can still to this day by yourself an Englishman's Greek and an Englishman's Hebrew concordance. And the great thing about those is it's got the listing of every Hebrew and Greek word all in one place. Strong's will have all those, but you got to keep jumping back and forth to the index in the back to figure out which ones you're supposed to look at. Because if a word is translated 10 ways... Strong will have that one word listed under those 10 different places. And so to be complete when you study that, you got to go back there and go, oh, I have to look for this number under this heading, and you got to go back over. You don't have to do all that legwork in a, with an Englishman's Greek. You just have to figure out what the Greek or Hebrew word is. And a lot of times they're even coded. Is your, is your volume coded? So you can even get a coded one. So if, once you find the Strong's word, you just go look up that number, and you can follow it through. But you know what? Josh brought up a couple things today, and I had my phone, and I tap on my phone, and I pull up uh, pull up my Bible app that I've got on there, and I looked up the Hebrew word, and it's like, da, 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 and, I, and there they are, and I can look at all those Hebrew places. Well, I Greek, I don't know why I'm thinking Hebrew here at the moment, but you can look up all the places where that Greek word is, and you can look at them, and you can do study, and you can even tap on most of those, and they'll bring up information from Greek scholars that have written dictionaries on those words, and you can find out this information on diacrino that in the active it means to judge between, and in the passive it means to doubt, to be divided over a matter. See, So you guys have it easy. Now, keep in mind, that's the, that's the technical legwork you'd go through when you're doing study on these things. You still, and this hasn't been a key part of what we're trying to get at, you still have to have the Spirit's illumination as to that thing. Because there are people that can look at the exact same evidence and miss sometimes distinctions that are being brought out. Case in point, our last word, son, there are a lot of people that when you come and look at the word son, they go son and child, or it's, they're, just, they're just different ways talking about the same thing. And they're not. They're talking about two different relationships to God and the family of God. And there's, so there's some people that, that even though they, and, and we're talking about scholars. We're not talking about, not that it makes any difference. As Josh said, there's no laity in clergy. We're all ministers. We all serve. We all have the same spirit of God. But there are people that, you know, have devoted their lives and have PhDs and such, and they study, and even they sometimes miss these distinctions. So you still need the spirit to guide and to give you illumination, to actually shed light on these texts. The Spirit doesn't help you find secret messages keyed in between the lines. But the Holy Spirit is going to help you see and understand and appreciate what is plainly written on the page in a way that somebody else might not. So there's an example with diacrino. We'll look at the next word uh, that we come to, and that's the word thanatos. And specifically, ha-thanatos. Now, ha-thanatos is not like Santa going, ho, ho, ho. It's ha, it's the definite article for thanatos. And it means death 
which can be either physical or spiritual. Now, I want you to turn to Revelation 21. Revelation 21. Revelation chapter 21, and uh, I want to pick up with verse, verse 1. Revelation 21, we'll start right off with verse 1 and go down through verse 4. And it says, And I saw, uh, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer a sea. And I saw, by the way, sea is something you have to interpret. Because in the context of Revelation, it could be referring to water. It could mean that that new earth doesn't have an ocean. But there's also the possibility that I'm pulled on that sometimes sea in the book of Revelation is used for the mass of humanity, meaning there's not a mass of, of uncontrolled humanity in the world. Everybody's going to actually be glorified in that situation. It's a very real possibility, just pointing that out. Okay, having for years, having for years said, oh, this means there's no ocean there. That may not be what that word means at all. I haven't decided yet. I've studied this. I haven't yet come to my conclusion. That's the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. So where would the sea be anyway? And the sea was no more. So. <laughs> well, but, it, but he's saying that he, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So it could be that in the new heaven and new earth, there is not a sea. Anyway. I'm just saying, it's one of these things. Do you see what I'm saying when you read these words? If, you have, if you've read the whole book of Revelation, and what's the first rule of reading your Bible? Read it, read it, read it, and read big parts of it. Read the whole chapter. Read the whole book. And if you read the whole book of Revelation and not a few selected verses, you're going to find that the book of Revelation is actually going to answer, I would say, this is just a, a guess. I'm pulling a Dwight here. Dwight, I like the way Dwight goes this. 90%. And then he goes, I'm not saying it actually is, but he's just giving it a good illustration. I'm going to say 90% of the questions you're going to have in the book of Revelation are going to be settled in the book of Revelation if you just keep reading. Anyway, so back here, verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready like a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tent of God is among mankind. He will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself shall be, shall be among them. And he shall wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now the, We're here because we're looking at this this noun, thanatos, death, as an example here of trying to understand something. And interestingly enough, not always, but frequently in the New Testament, when we have ha, thanatos, it is referring to spiritual death. It's referring to spiritual death, being separated from God. Not always. But you go over to the book of, Revel uh, book of Romans, the understanding that ha thanatos is referring to spiritual death is very important for understanding what Paul has to say about how God has dealt with our sin nature. But here in verse 4, he says he wipes away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be, and he says, the death in the Greek. Now, I would understand that in the context of Revelation. And if you turn back to chapter 20 and look in chapter 20, we have, uh, let's go to verse uh, 13. 
And it says, and the sea gave up the dead that were in it, the dead that were in it, and the death and the Hades gave up the dead that were in them. Now, what does that mean, the death and the Hades? Are those two separate places? No, I believe Hades is a location. The death is a state. It's that state of separation from God. And those people have been separated from God. And those, they give up the dead that's in them. And then it says in verse 14, and the death, the spiritual separation, and the Hades, that place, they are thrown into the lake of fire. Which is, by the way, is telling you that the lake of fire is now the place where the separation from God exists. So, when we go over to verse 4 of chapter 21, and Paul says, that there is, or excuse me, Jesus, or John is writing us to us here. I'm sorry. I don't know why I always have Paul writing everything. Uh, but he says there in verse 4, he says, there will no longer be the death. Now, what's, why is that important? Because what he's saying is, is in that new heaven and new earth, there is no such thing as spiritual death. And what does spiritual death bring? What does, what's one of the results of spiritual death? What? Separation. No, separation from God is spiritual death. That's what spiritual death is. It is separation from God. It brings physical death. Physical death is a product of being cut off from God. Physical death is a law, is a product. If we go over the book of, of Genesis, where God warned Adam that in the day that you eat of it, you're really going to die. Why? Because you're spiritually going to die immediately, and that's going to culminate ultimately in physical death. Now, you can die physically without, without being spiritually dead. That's the case of believers, but it is the product of what happened back here that's been set in motion. And so, the death, there is no more, spirit, there is no more spiritual death, but there's also going to be no more physical death. Death just does, does not, no longer exists. Now, here's, here's a reason why this is important to understand this passage. Okay? I want you to take, this is talking about the new creation. I want you to take your Bibles and go back to Isaiah. I had never even encountered this until last year. Last March, I had an, in, an individual that proposed this to me. Uh, and I took some time to look through this. I, there were a number of things that ran through my mind the minute I heard this. But Isaiah chapter 65, and uh, um, let's go back up to verse 16, just because I want to, just because I want to, I want to, I want to touch on a verse that Jim went over with us uh, back several years back here that uh, I have really appreciated his, the way he went through this. Verse 16, um, Isaiah 65, verse 16, make sure we're all in the same place. So that he who blesses himself in the earth shall bless himself in the God of truth. Shall, uh, he who swears in the earth shall swear by the God of truth. Because the former troubles are forgotten. Because they are hidden from my eyes. There's a couple of statements here. Verse 17. For behold, I create new heavens and new earth. And the former shall not be remembered to come to mind. The former what? Those former troubles are forgotten nor do they come to mind, or literally in the Hebrew, they do not rise up in the heart. Rising up in the heart means that they would come up in the heart in such a way that they will affect your decision-making, because that's what you do with your heart. So be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. So, verse 17 is telling us that God's going to create new heavens and new earth. 
He tells us before this and he tells us immediately after, after this that the things that went before this present creation in which we live in, it's not going to be remembered. But specifically what he says is not remembered are the troubles that are associated with it. The things that we go through. Raise your hand if you've gone through some troubles in life. Yeah. In fact, some of you could raise your hands and say, yeah, you've been through some really bad troubles. See, you've been through some really hard things. I have never had surgery. Watch, I'll fall today and I'll break my leg and have to have my leg set or something. But, but <laughs> no, I'm just saying, got to watch, you know, that. I'm not superstitious. I'm just joking. But, but there, I've known people that have gone through surgery because they've had a tremendous pain. They've had a lot of problems, physical problems. So some people have gone through tremendous amount of troubles in life. I've known people that have gone through relationship troubles, family troubles, work troubles, things that largely I have not had to face or deal with to the degree that I've watched other people deal with them. All that stuff, all this stuff. However big or small those troubles are, they are not remembered in the other creation. Now, let me ask you a question. What is one of the things that causes us trouble in life that is common to all people? You're all going to, one way or another, you're going to relate to it before it happens to you. Think of, think of what we're talking about. What's our topic? Death. death. Is death something that's hard? It is. I don't care how, how divorced and how cold you are. I don't care how spiritual you are. Death is painful for people. It's painful because even if you know that the person that died is in the presence of the Lord and they are better than they ever were on this earth, you still miss them. You still miss their voice. You still miss the things that they did. I say this regularly when we go to Nelson's. We walk in the back door of their house. You know how every house you walk into, I think you could blindfold me, I could walk into a lot of people's houses, I could, and I know where we are, because they have certain aromas. I walk into Stan and Linda's house, and it smells like my grandparents' house. I'm taken back years when I was growing up, going into my, the back, we always enter, you always enter through the back door of my grandma's house, through her back porch, and you come in there, oh, I love that smell when you came into my grandma's house, like that. Qualifying. Qualifying. That's a good smell. It's a good smell. I like that. I go in there. It takes me back. It's a good memory. See? And I and I smell that and I appreciate it, but at the same time, I miss my grandparents. I miss my grandparents. My grandfather's been gone for over 10 years. My grandmother's been gone for over 20 years now. You know? And I you miss them. See? And so there's pain. Now I think this is important because I want to keep going here and I want you to see why. What we looked at in Revelation is important for understanding this. So he says in verse 17, Before, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping will no longer be heard in here, nor the voice of crying. Now he says in verse 20, nor, no more shall an infant be there, but that is but a few days. Nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For, he says, a youth, a youth, our Bible say child, it's a little bit different Hebrew word, it's a youth, shall die 100 years old. And the sinner, being 100 years old, shall be 
accursed. Now, this is what was proposed to me uh, by an individual last, last March that told me um, that this is eternity. This individual said that what we have right now in this world is going to go on forever. That we will be glorified, we will be in a new heaven and new earth, but people will continue to be sinners and people will continue to die. There will still be death. Because that was the first thing we went through this. And, and this person was telling me that, uh, making this statement here about the new heavens and the new earth. And I said, he says, go down and read verse 20. And I said, well, that can't be eternity because they're dying. And he goes, that's, he says, we're making the assumption that death ends when we go into eternity. And he says, in this passage, that is indefensible. Now, one of the things that happens is in verse 17, our Bibles, and this is where we're going to switch now from just talking about this. I want to move down to the section below, although I didn't include it. This is where we have to touch on some grammar and some translation. For I'm reading from the New, American, or New King James Version here, and it says, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And that's not what it says. The Hebrew literally says, And, or behold, creating new heavens and new earth. It doesn't say I create. There's no I. There's no pronoun. There's not even a verb with a pronoun. There's a participle. Literally, he says, creating new heavens and new earth, the former will not be remembered. That's what he says. Creating this, these things are going to be gone. That's something that they can look forward to. Now, if you've still got death and dying out there in this new heavens and new earth that is being created... Is that going to bring back to memory the troubles of the past? If you have to witness that, I would say there's potential that it could do that. That's kind of arguing a little bit philosophically, but, um, but there's a grammatical issue. The second thing that goes on in here is in verse 19, it says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in here. And verse 19 has... Uh, is in Hebrew what we call a disjunctive statement. You don't see that uh, in here. They don't, com they don't communicate that idea, but we actually have uh, uh, a disjunction in here. It says, I will rejoice in Jerusalem. And then it, then it goes on and it says, and um, I've got to find my disjunction, and not, there it is, and not then is heard. And that is a strong contrast in the Greek or in the Hebrew here that he's bringing out. So he's breaking with the thought. And a disjunction can mean that there's a break in time that's being in introduced, that there's a parenthesis that's being introduced, which would be kind of a break in the thought or break in the time. And the point being is, he says, I am creating new heavens and new earth. And you can look forward to a time in which, guess what? Things are going to be different, and you're not going to be you're not going to bear the troubles that have gone in the past. But the other point, and this is very important for you, is when he gets down to verse 19, he's talking about Jerusalem in the kingdom. He's talking about Jerusalem during the kingdom, and he introduces in the middle of this this disjunction to say, "I'm not talking still about that out there in eternity. I'm talking about in this kingdom, and in the kingdom, people will live a long time in the kingdom." Things are going to be different in the first thousand years of the kingdom before the great white throne. Because when we get out there into eternity, we had a plain statement 
in Revelation 21, verse 4, that said, the death, being the spiritual death, is gone. Because why does it say at the end of verse 20 that this person at 100 years of age dies? It says that that person is a... There's two things he says. He's a sinner and he's accursed. If he's a sinner, that's an indication that there's a problem that he's spiritually dead. You're talking about a spiritually dead person that actually comes under judgment and has to die being accursed. Don't take this word accursed in the same way that we have accursed over in the New Testament. It's a completely different word. This is not eternity. This is in the kingdom. In the kingdom, you are going to have glorified and unglorified people living side by side. That's one of the things amillennialists really don't like about the premillennial position. They go, how could that be? Well, guess what? Jesus walked among unglorified people for 33 years. And the only thing it did was kind of make the unglorified people a little bit disgusted with him because they didn't like the fact that he was so righteous in his character. So the reason I bring this up, the reason I show you this is because when we're talking about word meanings, word meanings depend on context. And when we're looking at this issue of death over there in, John, in, in Revelation 20, when we're talking about the fact that, this, that the death no longer exists, in fact, we just saw just previous to that, at the end of chapter 20, that the death and the Hades are cast into the lake of fire. Does God, is God going to continue to repeat this all throughout history? All throughout history, out there, in, well, beyond history, out into eternity? Is he out there in eternity going to continue to be having to cast people in the lake of fire again and again and again because of this matter? No. So you need to, so I, that, that passage over there, I believe, helps bring a little clarity. I, I think you can understand Isaiah 65 in its context, but I think the passage in, in Revelation 21, if you understand some of the grammar in the context, actually helps inform with what's going on here. I had never heard, I had never heard anybody ever suggest that there are going to be people that are dying and people that are sinners out in eternity. I'd never heard anybody present that idea before. And uh, hopefully, as we've done here, we've maybe shown you a little bit of why grammar is important and why one of these things, which we're going to talk about in just a minute, a disjunctive. I'm, I'm using terms, I know you guys don't understand anything what these are, but I'm trying to explain a little bit to you, and I'm just trying to show you that when I study, and when other people study, these are the kind of things that, to the best of our ability, we want to pay attention to. We just don't want to ignore them, okay? So, now we're going to talk about, um, oh, so these were the examples. I, I forgot that I had a thing. Now we're going to look at um, Hebrew. We're going to look at a couple statements in Hebrew, and we're going to talk about Hebrew grammar for a minute, and we're going to talk about the fact that um, a Hebrew verb, any Hebrew verb, potentially can occur in one of seven stems. So I want you to write these down. I'm just kidding. It could be a cal, a nifal, a pl, a puel, a hithpal, a hithiel, or a hithpal. Hafel, I'm sorry, I, was saying, I said I already said Hithpeal once. So one of seven stems. And every one of those stems, it's just how the word changes, but every one of those stems, the, re the reason that those are important is they all say something different about the nature of the action and the person doing it. So, 
Turn with me to Isaiah, or excuse me, Psalm 14. Psalm 14. And the last thing I want to ever do, because I remember somebody telling me this years ago, I, they, we sat and I went over some things and he says, all I got away from that Bible study is, if I don't know Greek or Hebrew, I can't study the Bible. So he just took his Bible and threw it down. He goes, I might as well just not even read it. And I said, you can read a lot of this and you can understand it just fine. But, but when we do read it, we want our reading to be as informed as possible. And so we want to try to bring any of this information to bear to help us understand it better. So I, uh, Psalm 14, I don't want to still, I'm still over in Isaiah. We have, first of all, we have a nifal. A nifal is either a reflexive or a passive stem. Kind of, you always have to interpret that in context. Uh, reflexive means it's something you're doing to yourself. Passive, it's something being done to you by somebody else. And so, Isaiah, Psalm 14, boy, Psalm, Psalm. Psalm. Okay, there we go. I think maybe hopefully we got that done. Psalm 14 and verse 3. It says, they have all turned aside. They have together become corrupt. None, there is no, no one who does good. Now this is a nifal stem. And so the first thing that, that it has here, it says, it says they become corrupt. They become corrupt. And the nifal stem, I would take this to be reflexive. It's not that something out here is making them corrupt. It's nifal in the sense that they make themselves corrupt. Peggy was going over a verse in Romans 9 the other day where it talks about those who have fitted themselves out or prepared them, or have fitted themselves out for destruction. And it's a middle voice in the, in the, uh, in the Greek. God didn't make those people fit for destruction. They've done that to themselves. And if you want an example of it, you go back to Romans chapter 1 and you look at three times that God's giving these people this opportunity to, to respond properly and they keep rejecting what God wants and so God gives them over to what they want and gives them over to what they want. Gives, in other words, he's letting them do to themselves what they want to do. And this is the same thing here. 14.3, it says... Um, they have turned aside. They together have become corrupt. Become corrupt is fine. I just think if we add it in there, they have caused themselves to become corrupt or made themselves corrupt, may just add a little bit more of the punch that it's something they're doing to themselves. But I want you to go back up now to verse 1. Verse 1. Because in verse 1 it says, it says, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. They, now this is the way, the New King James translates it, they are corrupt. Now, I went through, I don't know, I've got seven or eight English translations that are popular uh, on my computer when I was looking through this, and almost all of them, when we come to verse one here, uh, almost all of them simply translate this, that they are corrupt, uh, that in something to that effect. But it's the word, it, it's a hyphial stem. Y'all got that? <laughs> what that means is it's a causative stem. It's they cause corruption. So the statement back up in verse 1, different than in verse 3, verse 3 is saying that they've corrupted themselves. Verse 1 is saying they've caused corruption. They cause ruination. Those that go around and they say in their heart, there is no God, they cause their corruption. In fact, it goes on, they have done abominable works and there is none who does good. Um, Josh quoted 
or read to us uh, Romans 3 this morning where this is quoted uh, in part. See, everybody out there in the world thinks that they're doing good. Unsaved people, they think they're doing good all the time, but in reality, God's point of view, they're not doing good. They're doing abominable works. And I've illustrated abominable before. It's something you look at with such horror that you go, oh, I don't even want to be close to that. Oh, it's horrible. Oh, disgusting. And I've used illustrations before. The one, one, of the, one, of the first, one of the ones I remember is the first time I, first time I owned a dog growing up. I had a Brittany Spaniel. And I was taking her out. And we were going for a run up the hill one day after school. And all of a sudden, she runs over on the side. And she, I, I didn't know dogs did this. I was stupid, you know. But this dog is just rolling like mad on the shoulder. And I'm like, what in the world's the matter with her? Chrissy, get off that. And she jumps up. And I go over there. And there's a dead animal. And she's been rolling in this stinking thing. And then, of course, what do dogs want to do? They want to come up and rub up against you. That's the way they say, hi, hello there. And you're like, no, don't touch me. You smell. You're horrible. It's abominable. It's like, oh. Did that gross illustration help you understand abominable deeds? It's something that's so horrible, you don't want to have anything to do with it. You want nothing to do with it. It's, oh! But he says, but that's what they do. And the thing is, they cause corruption. It's not just saying that they are corrupt. It's saying, you feel, they cause corruption. The Net Bible, I think I made a note on this, the Net Bible is probably the closest in trying to bring that up. It says, they sin. Now, it's not the word sin. It's the word corrupt. But they're trying to bring out that idea, in some sense or another, that it's something they're actively doing. It's not just that they're in a state of being corrupt, which is what verse 3 says. Now, do you see when you're reading that passage, how the grammar informs our understanding of it? And does it give it a different flavor when you understand that? Is there a difference just between being corrupt and causing corruption? Yeah. Both those statements are made one in verse 1 and one in verse 3. And if you want to look at the others, I'm not going to take you to it, but you have the same thing happening in 53.1 and 53.3. You have the same terminology used in exactly the same forms, the same nifal, nifal and hifal uh, forms there. And to me, I think that that's important. Now, there's another aspect of, of grammar, and uh, we call it syntax. Syntax is a, a fancy way of saying how all these words relate. You can learn all the grammar of everything, but now syntax is how does it all fit together? Okay, because that comes from the Greek word to be in order, tasso, and soon, Greek preposition together. So it's in order together. In order together. You could take in English a bunch of words that make sense, shake them up in a tumbler, throw them out on the, on the table, and just randomly order them out, and you could put together a line of words that's not going to make sense the way it originally did, right? There's In English, there's a certain order you have to put words for them to make sense. Same thing as in Greek and Hebrew. Except in Greek and Hebrew, the order, there's different ways that you can order words than you can in English. So I want to, I want to look at an example of, of syntax in a couple of different examples in this way. And I want you to go over to uh, Psalm 106. Psalm 106. <clears throat> and one of the things that and uh, Psalm 106, in fact, Josh had one of these today, in, in, but he had it in English or in Spanish. 
Greek. Man, I tell you, I'm just tripping over my tongue today. Uh, he had this in Greek, and it's one of the verses where it's said, uh, uh, it's talking about a gift freely given. Our Bibles say freely given. But that word that's translated freely in the passage he went over, and I can't remember what it was today, but it's actually a form in the, in the Greek, a form of the word gift. But it's the noun gift, a form of this word, that actually functions as an adverb. And Hebrew does the same thing, where you take two verbs, two finite verbs, you put them together, and the one actually communicates the action, the second one actually functions in an adverbial sense. Now this one, this is interesting, because I had just gone over this verse studying for it, and then I go to a pastor's meeting, and we read through this verse that next well, two days later, I guess, when I was at there, and I was like, wow, we ju I just was going over this verse the other day. I didn't say that to them, but I'm thinking about that as they talk about this. This is, a, this is a really interesting passage, and I think I referenced this last week, about the fact that it's easy for us to be forgetful. How many of you have ever witnessed plainly and clearly God do something for you in your life that there is no way that you can attribute to the fact that it just happened? It's just the way it worked out. Have any, of you, have any of you actually ever prayed for something? Prayed for something. You have no inkling whatsoever that what you're praying for could potentially happen in the next moment apart from God. And then watch it actually happen. God, I need gold. No, that's never happened because God, that's not what, that's, that would be outside the will of God. But there are things, situations where I've been in a situation and I'm like, I just, I have no inkling whatsoever that God's going to do, do something here in this thing, how this is going to happen. But I'm like, God, this needs to happen. And I walk into it and the situation just is like totally flipped. And I'm like, I did not see that coming. That was totally you. Now, the reason I say that is because hopefully all of us in our Christian life have experienced God doing things. But we have the same danger that Israel had. We can witness the work of God as Israel did when they were coming out of Egypt and then get out a little ways and forget. And all of a sudden, now we're worried about something when we shouldn't be worried about it because did we just watch God take care of it back here? And this is one of the things that goes on here. Uh, Psalm 106 Psalm 106, and uh, let's go back up to verse 6 and read down through this, just so that you can kind of pick up the context. We have sinned with our fathers. We have committed iniquity or perversity. We have done wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand or were not mindful of your wonders. They did not remember the multitude of your mercies. But they rebelled by the sea, the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them by the hand. Is that a statement of grace? They rebelled and nevertheless, God still saved them. Yeah, God did exercise grace. That wasn't their way of life, but he did that. That he might make known his mighty power, might make his mighty power known. He rebuked the Red Sea also and it dried up. So he led them through the depths as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of him who hated them. He redeemed them from the hand of their enemy. The waters covered their enemies. There was not one of them left. Then they believed his words. Then they sang his praise. And then, verse 13, they soon forgot his works. <sighs> they soon forgot his works. Now, literally, the Hebrew, and this is 
I, they soon forgot his works. I think that that's acceptable English translation, but the Hebrew literally is. It says, uh, uh, just trying to put this together, I need to remember how, how to do this, literally is, they forgot his works, they hurried to it. And that's the two verbs. We have forgot, and then the verb hurried. So it's like, and that's where this word hurry to it, run to it, is used as an adverb. So they forgot his works and they hurried to forget, which our Bibles say they soon forgot his works. But the Hebrew is even a little bit more powerful. It's like they rushed to forget his works. Forget is, was the main thrust of what he's getting at here in the way this is put together. And the reason, the reason I come over and show you this, the reason I want you to understand this is because this is one of those places where, as we understand grammar, when I'm studying, when I'm reading through these things, these are things that I think are important for us to pay attention to because we can, sadly, we're warned in the New Testament not to, but we can follow the example of Israel. Paul tells us not to follow the example of Israel because it's easy for us to watch God take care of something and then quickly run and forget what God's already done. Now, the next one uh, that I want to look at is what we call, and we've been over this in our adult class, but turn to Genesis 1-2, is where we have another example of what we call a wow disjunctive. A wow is an and. In fact, actually, if you we translate it and, but the original meaning of wow, does anybody know what the original meaning of wow is? Hook, pin, or peg. I still remember that when I learned that first year first year of vocabulary, a hook, pin, or peg, and I said, yeah, my peg is a wow. <laughs> See, so I always remember, that's why I always remember that. Anyway, sorry. I'm being 22 all over again. So Genesis chapter 1. Oh, I'm still that way. I still, I still think my peg is a wow. So, but Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2 we, uh, we have what we call a wow disjunctive. Now, normally, um, what we have, and um, switch it over here. I thought I had a, no, I don't. I'm sorry. I thought I had, I thought I had the example. Normally, what you have is you have a conjunction at the beginning of a, of a, of a clause attached to a verb. But when you put a conjunction, an and, that's what a wow is. Its function is an and or a but or something like that. When you attach it, to something other than a verb, you're creating what they often call a disjunction. It's something we would translate, but, okay, rather than and, or then, it's but. And so here in Genesis 1-2, we have in verse 1, it says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then verse 2 starts with a wow disjunctive because it starts with, but the earth, but. It's not and the earth was, but literally, but the earth without form, without, uh, was without form and void. Showing you that there's a difference, a contrast here. And not everybody always appreciates this because there are people that they want continuity all through here. And I'm not here to teach through Genesis 1 in creation, but there's a break here. There's discontinuity. Genesis 1.1 starts off and says, God created the heavens and the earth. There it is. And then verse 2 introduces the fact that we've got a discontinuity here because this creation lacks something. It's messed up. Something's not right. 
And some people are going to go, well, that's the way God created it. You know, like he makes his Play-Doh, throws it down on the table, and then starts making. But that's not at all what's happening. When he made that, it was absolutely everything it was supposed to be. It, verse 2 tells us, sometime previous, sometime here after verse 1, sometime in there, it became without form and void. It became in a way that it didn't function the way it was originally intended to which explains why we have all the recreation, all the work going on in the remainder of chapter, chapter 1, where he has to make it habitable again, because that habitable state is gone. In fact, that's part of the idea of those expressions without form and void, tohu and bohu up there, have the idea of not habitable, not suitable for habitation. Now, let me give you an illustration of this in a way that maybe is a little, even maybe a little easier to see. Turn to Genesis 41. Genesis 41. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh has the dream, the dream that's going to talk about the famine. And so uh, Joseph, he asks for counsel and Joseph gives him counsel on what to do. And so if you go to verse 53, it says, And the seven years of plenty which were in the land of Egypt ended, and the seven years of famine began to come, as Joseph had said. The famine was in all the lands. What do your English Bibles have next? But. Do all your English Bibles have a but? The famine was in all the lands. Do they all have a but there? Because that's what this is. This is, a, this is a wow disjunctive. This is showing you there's a break. Famine's everywhere. But change of, change of location, change of situation. But in the land of Egypt, there was bread. Now, the famine struck Egypt. But because they were under the direction of Joseph planning all of this, they were prepared. They were ready. There's another one at the end of chapter 40 that involved the, the cupbearer and the baker, where it says, and Pharaoh restored the cupbearer to his position, but <laughs> the chief baker he hung. Contrast. There's a strong contrast between what this guy got and what this guy got. And the reason, what I'm trying to show you is, and I know this part of our study, this is probably the, I, maybe this is the most uncomfortable part of this, how to read your Bible. Because some of you are saying, I, I don't, I can't do this stuff. I don't know Hebrew and I don't know Greek. And I was trying to tell you at the beginning, you have access to all kinds of information, all kinds of tools, stuff that you can pull up on your phone if you want, or on a tablet or on your computer. And you can look this stuff up and you can still buy print books that'll help you do this kind of research. And you should learn to do some of this if you want to really study and share the Word of God. You can do this work. My wife, my wife is working. She's doing a study right now on mercy. So she's doing the legwork that it takes to go through and look at examples of mercy and take that stuff and put it together. See, you can do this. And yet my wife will tell you she's not a Greek expert. She sits in my Greek class, but she keeps telling me she's not a Greek student. <laughs> But she's working on this word mercy. See, We had a friend. She ran the bookstore when Peg and I were in, were in uh, college. A little Christian bookstore. And uh, she, she um, had um, uh, Wiest's word studies for the English student. And she would take a book of the Bible and she would read through that. And every day 
she would read through a section, a verse or whatever it was, and then she would read through Reese's notes. And then she would look at that. She'd look at her English Bible, and she would do this comparison back and forth, trying to take the research that this English writer or this Greek teacher from Moody Bible Institute a long time ago did writing lessons for people that spoke English to help them understand some of the depth in the Greek behind their English Bibles. And she studied like that. Every day, that was her, that's what her morning, when she was eating her breakfast, Evelyn said that's what she did every day. So I just share those kind of things with you because I, I want us to understand if we're going to read our Bible, the first thing we need to do is read it. And we need to read it and we need to lead, read a lot of it. But the other thing is, is we need to keep it in its context. And we need to be able to look at it and we need to be able to appreciate the distinctions in words. We need to pay attention to grammar. Sometimes your English Bible does a really good job of bringing out grammatical distinctions. And we need to pay attention to that. But sometimes, well, sometimes we kind of miss on some of that. We don't go that far. And so sometimes if you have those questions, those are things, if you, if you come across something, you're going, I don't know what that is. You know what? There are people you can come talk to. You could give me a call. Stop by. Get, try to help me understand this thing. Go to, get, get a hold of Josh. Try to help me understand this thing. Try to help us understand uh, on these things. Again, I never want you to think that you cannot study the Bible without being a Greek and Hebrew expert. Okay, I don't want you to ever think that. But I do want you to realize that there is value in looking and paying attention to these things because it does bring some depth to this. Now, where we're going from our study at this point is we're going to be taking time and we're going to be looking at what happens when I read the Bible in this way? And what happens when I don't read the Bible in this way? So this is what we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. The effect of reading your Bible in the manner that we've been trying to demonstrate over the last month, how does it affect you? And this is where hopefully our study will go. Actually, hopefully the Lord will return before that. We won't need that study. But if he's determined that we're supposed to stay here for another week or two, then in those week or two, those are the things that we trust we'll look at. Father, we're thankful for the time you've given us together. We're thankful for your word, every facet of it. We realize, as we saw last week, the Apostle Paul said that you chose the very words, the very forms of those words. You chose exactly how to say what you wanted to say to us so that we could appreciate exactly what you're thinking and exactly what you planned. And therefore, we want to be those that handle your word carefully and read it carefully so that we can think more clearly, more accurately, the things that you have plainly written to us on the pages of your word. Thank you for that, that we actually have a copy of this revelation from you to us so that we do have that privilege of thinking with you some of these things. And we thank you for all this. You are such a kind and gracious God to provide us this. Amen.